0: Triss M. Bowden not only knows the meaning of gratitude, but he lives with it every day. As a self-taught musician, Triss worked his way into the world of music at a young age and never looked back. From high school surf bands, to his band Honk, to his studio and touring connections with Kenny Loggins, Michael McDonald, Steve Vai, Neil Diamond, Roger Daltrey, Richard Marks, Al Jarreau, Firefall, and Crosby, Stills & Nash, along with his long-standing gig as the drummer for Chicago. Tris has rarely had any downtime throughout a career that has spanned for more than four decades. But gratitude comes not only from this success with music. Tris is a cancer survivor and has developed a heightened sense of gratitude for all that encompasses him, from surfing, to music, to life. Inside Music Cast welcomes Tris and Bowden. Hey Triss, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Rick. Thank you. Welcome.
0: It's well known that hearing a marching band during a 4th of July parade in uh, Huntington Beach where, when you were five years old, you know, that kind of instantly influenced your interest in drums. So uh, tell us about how, how this influenced you and how you reacted afterwards.
1: Well, <laughs> I was so absolutely just like moved to my core. Uh, I, I remember that, that moment. But yeah. Still to this day, uh-huh. when this uh, drum section had, had gone by, and uh, I was all of five years old, but and never had experienced anything quite as exciting as the, as <laughs> the sound of his drums and, and yeah. uh, what it did to me. I mean, what it emoted, what it did me. Uh, I just, uh, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I was so excited. About it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I, but I knew then literally then that for, that that was absolutely my calling
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that was something that i would do in my life you know mm-hmm. uh, would be to, to play the drums so um yeah after that of course i drove my, my parents crazy you know banging typically <laughs> on pots and pans with wooden spoons you know and yeah. and uh they reluctantly uh encouraged me uh by buying me a. First, to practice pad, yeah, <laughs> uh, and then uh, a snare drum. Uh, by the time I was about, I guess nine or ten years old, I had uh, my first snare drum, and uh, and it was a, an old Pearl. I remember back uh-huh. when Pearl wasn't the Pearl, nearly the Pearl that it is today, yeah, or has been over the years. Uh, it was it was. Pretty
0: put together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that
1: I loved it. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're all big fans of guys like, you know, Jeff Percaro and Steve Gadd around here. And, you know, they're both drummers that, you know, if you go back into their history and learn about them, they were real lovers of marching band also. I know Jeff was real influenced uh, by, by marching band. But, you know, drum parts in marching band, you know, when you think about it, are very regimented, they're, they're mechanical, they're somewhat military in nature, and and time is really critical. So do you feel that these types of, of influences from, from, from that, from marching band, still carry through to your playing even today?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, gee, uh, you know, you mentioned Steve Gadd as well, yeah. and Jeff. Uh, Steve Gadd, I, I've heard base entire solos off of like a what would be a, a traditional cadence, yeah. you know, or street beat, you know, and, and uh, my God, man, he uh, his his the execution of all his rudiments in that is just absolutely flawless, mm-hmm. as well as everything else he does. Uh, uh, that that uh, I mean, it just it really sort of for me. Just as as an art form, I what what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that that marching drums is such a uh, uh, or can be uh, such a beautiful art form too, Mm -hmm. even though it is very regimented. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. uh, I, being self-taught, though primarily Mm -hmm. self-taught, did not study. Uh, like rudimental drumming, okay. and uh, I, I didn't really have a drum instructor at an early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just I played in junior high school band, and uh, and as a consequence, you know, the band director was the drum instructor. I was sort of left uh, to my own devices to to uh, kind of figure things out. And uh, although I learned to read back then. Um, I just uh you know, as far as hand technique and all of that, yeah, and rudiments and that and i i uh I studied that later on on my
3: own hey um Tris, tell us a little bit about uh, your parents and how they supported you growing up uh obviously, they tolerated a little bit of the the bang on the pans as you were growing up, but uh right. tell us how they, how they supported you in the musical perspective, and what part did they have uh when you were young?
1: Well, I tell you my folks all uh although uh, neither of them were professional musicians. My mom was a, a pretty accomplished pianist, and uh, and my dad, I, I laughingly say it was the best dashboard drummer I've ever heard. He, <laughs> <laughs> he was sort of a jazz uh, aficionado, uh, and would listen to to you know a lot of a lot of jazz in the car, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I don't know, he just uh, he would amaze me just tapping on the on the. Uh, uh, on the dashboard. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they they influenced and encouraged me by, by their very eclectic tastes. Uh, at our home, uh, we had, of course, you know, like all the Bubeck records and that. Uh, yeah. Also, all the big band stuff. I mean, dating back, you know, I mean, I was listening to Krupa and... and uh, with Benny Goodman and and uh, and Glenn Miller and all that, you know, all right. the, and Duke yep. and you know, uh, uh, Count and all of that stuff, you know. Uh, so I was I was sort of very influenced by all those great drummers, yeah. Uh, as well as uh, uh, my I had an uncle who had traveled to the South Pacific and who had come back uh, from Tahiti after having been there for a number of years and brought me what really amounted to my first drum that predated that snare drum, or, hmm. or my uh, wow. practice pad, even. Yeah. It was a one a, a, a hollowed-out log um, that they use in, in uh, Polynesian and Tahitian music. Yeah. And anyway, I had albums, uh, uh, one called Drums of Bora Bora, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that I still hear, <laughs> you know, occasionally... If I'm soloing, I I can't help but reference you know some of the themes that that I've heard way back then. Oh yeah, in my solos, yeah.
0: I've been to Bora Bora. Now you got me thinking about Bora Bora. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? it yeah, is. I,
1: I was there uh, in 2002 myself. I oh wow, well. made it there.
0: I I uh, went in uh, 2000, I think. And uh, man, I'd I'd love to go back. There. <laughs> yeah, Amazing.
1: absolutely. And Morea, I fell yep.
0: in love with as well. Well, hey, let's, let's, let's talk about one of our favorite things we like to ask our guests, and that's influences. And, and knowing that you grew up in Southern California and the surf and sand were basically your backyard, you know, you, you, performed, with, uh, you performed yourself with some surf bands. So I'm guessing the likes of The Ventures and, and Dick Dale might have been on your musical radar. So who were some of the artists or bands that really grabbed you when you were a teen?
1: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, uh, growing up and as a teenager, uh, the first bands I I I, I was with, was in myself were surf bands.
2: Yeah, uh, right.
1: I, I I was very influenced by Dick Dale and the tones and also the Ventures, and mm-hmm. and to uh, so many of those surf bands at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh so I was in a band. I think the first band I was in we were called the Defenders, and <laughs> we actually our logo because, you know uh, the the guys had fender guitars, so we tried to make it that sort of font, oh yeah, and I had that on my on my bass drum, you know uh-huh. <laughs> yeah but uh yeah we we played all adventure stuff, and you know uh that sort of thing, all instrumental.
0: Tell us about and you just mentioned that you were in a band called the Defenders, but you were also in a a band called the other half and and they were extremely popular in the area where you grew up in. is that right well
1: yeah, actually um yeah, the other half we we uh had the, the distinction of being asked to not perform anymore at the teenage fair because uh at the standale booth because we were clogging the entryway. <laughs> 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 this uh uh it was at the hollywood palladium and and uh uh the, the teenage fair that happened every year we we were asked to play for for Standell amplifiers and guitars yeah and uh their booth was right there at the entrance and the band was actually pretty good we had a lot of singers in the band and and you know performed a lot of you know free and full part harmony in that sure and uh anyway, yeah the band uh <laughs> The band actually kind of uh, we were good enough that we we were a problem there at the entrance <laughs> uh yeah. and we also uh were sponsored by vox and so we we would uh perform at their booth as well but uh yeah the other half we actually opened for uh, for uh some name acts and that back you know when I was fourteen fifteen years old uh and when that band actually broke up, there was a band that I was the lead singer of. Um, it was a four-piece band. And believe me, this wasn't my idea. It was the bass player's idea. <laughs> but the band was called The Triss because I was oh, wow. the lead.
2: The <laughs> <laughs> oh, Triss, I love <laughs> and, it.
1: And it was, T stood for Tom, and the R was for Ray, who was the leading guitarist. Uh-huh. And then I for I as if I made that up. And then S <laughs> was for Bob Sachs, the bass player. And that band, we actually opened for Stevie Wonder at a at a place called the Marina Palace wow. in New York Beach. And uh oh my god, what an honor. We were uh, bet, so yeah. nervous and that. But Stevie Douglas and uh was very encouraging and and uh well that just uh it was the kiss of life, as far as I was concerned.
2: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I knew that,
1: that uh you know, my God, if Stevie like this, then we must be doing something right, and mm-hmm. and uh, so it sort of validated my choice, I think, <laughs> in, in, in playing music. So you yeah.
3: need. Hey, in 1970, you founded uh, basically another band too. It was called Honk. And, uh, we, you know, we listened to some samples, and you have touches of, you know, um, traditional surf sound with a little mix of Lagans and Messina and and even a little bit of uh, Grand Funk Railroad, if you would. And, and so tell us a little bit about Honk and also your first recording that uh, that you did with him.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, gee, Honk was, uh, I was asked right at, uh, after graduating from high school, uh, there was this name band uh, called New Life that was actually, uh, the band was Breaking Up. And the band already had a record deal uh and so the uh the main songwriters in that band uh or two of them anyway uh were looking to form a new band and asked me to join this this new band that already had a record deal, so I mean <laughs> it was like college record deal <laughs> college record deal yeah. record deal one out and so yeah. anyway yeah this uh we ended up naming ourselves Honk, and uh uh, the idea was to play all original music, but of course you couldn't make a living doing that initially. So uh, so you know, we played in clubs all over the place, everywhere from Phoenix to Fresno to, you know, all over. And I uh, had to play a certain amount of cover music in that at first. Uh, but uh, but meanwhile, we're writing and, and, and performing as well in clubs, original music. And uh, these guys were well, sort of like the, the 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 creme de la creme of Orange County, uh, the members were all brilliant players. Yeah. in fact, I used to watch like like uh, one in particular, the bass player, uh, on on like he was in a band called the Cindermen that were that were very very famous. And ironically, that band, the Cindermen, uh, were were playing the rendezvous ballroom when it burned. And, uh, you know, all their equipment burned up with it. And oh, no. Sort of, definitely, you know, sort of ironic, the name Cinderman, and all. Yeah. <laughs> but I used to watch him on, uh, the Lloyd Baxton show and, and, uh, Sam Riddle, Night Street West, and all these TV shows.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: here I was playing with, uh, a guy that I grew up watching on TV and never would have imagined I'd be in a band with, you know? And, uh. His name is Don Whaley great singer and, and bass player uh-huh. and Steve Wood uh, was the, uh, the other member from New life who is an incredible singer and uh, and keyboard player as well as guitarist uh-huh. but primarily keyboardist and a great writer so we uh, we put this band together and, uh, and we had a publishing deal as well as the record deal uh, and and we had unlimited access to to their studio, their recording studio. In fact, we were encouraged to to go in and and uh, demo all of our our tunes, any originals we might have, and, and at the same time uh, we were doing that. I was kind of really learning about recording and uh, really cutting my teeth in the, in the, in the studio. Uh-huh. And uh, boy, it was a whole different canvas for me. Uh, you know, I thought I was playing my butt off and and I'd hear a playback, and it just sounded like crap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I'd play a fill and rush that, go uh, the hell out of a fill, and then, yeah. you know, to, uh, my time was all over the place. So Anyway, it, it, really, uh, it really forced me and helped me to, uh, to hone down my, uh, my recording skills. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Honk went on to, uh, we were asked, even though we were anything but a, a surf band, there was uh, this this great surf film producer named Greg McGillivray, mm-hmm. whom uh, had done this film Five Summer Stories, and yep. because we had become kind of uh, popular in in our area in Orange County and and elsewhere, and he knew that we were pretty good writers in that. And two of us in the band surfed uh, myself and Steve Wood, uh-huh. so he he asked us to to actually the soundtrack for this this surf film yeah um, little did we know when we we did the soundtrack we wrote it all pretty much on the spot in the studio he would describe who was surfing at what break and because Steve and I kind of knew you know those those different breaks in Hawaii and, right. and California and, you knew the and scene that, yeah the, the surfer styles in that he kind of described to the rest of the band what the what the mood might be uh, well anyway it turned out it was almost like Zen Archery Man, the, the music came out without having seen any of the footage but well, wow. they put it with the footage it was absolutely perfect wow. it, was, it was uncanny and uh, like they say it was like Zen Archery because <laughs> we, we hadn't seen it <laughs> mm-hmm. the yeah. but the mood uh, just fit the, uh, the, the film so beautifully and, uh, and I mean it was just it was amazing well, I was just going to say, as a result of, of that, um, the success of that movie, it became the largest box office gross for a sixteen millimeter film ever. Wow! Uh, to that time, sixteen millimeters, anyway. That's cool. Uh, and it was all over the world. It was hailed. as, you know, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, uh, one tune off off that soundtrack album. Became number one in Hawaii for a matter of months, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 we um, as a result unwittingly became uh, uh, the modern day surf hero band. I mean, it was like we weren't a surf band at all, but but uh, everybody knew us most from from that movie, you know, and yeah. that's where our, our, our initial popularity happened.
0: You know, when I, when I listened to that album, um, when I listened to it, you know, my, my thoughts of surf music are the stereotypical ventures, Dick Dale, that sort of thing. But when I heard that album, your music was really more of a mix of like a, a folk and country and rock all rolled into one. And, you know, to me, I mean, just to describe it, those who haven't heard the album, it's, it's more reminiscent of like a Loggins and Messina sound from that same era. era. Would you agree? Maybe, maybe even a little bit of like a grand funk railroad kind of tied into it. Was, well yeah. Is that yeah. a fair assessment. Um,
1: they they were all certainly influences on on us. Uh-huh. I think that that more than anything uh that record was done uh in the early 70s uh-huh. and and most of the uh, surf music that that we were talking about Dick Dale and the Ventures and all that. Right. It was sort of a thing of the 60s and mm-hmm. so you know music uh, even surf music had evolved yeah uh, over the years and and uh um as I said, you know we were writing constantly and and were an all original group in uh, at least ideally and uh <clears throat> so so we had kind of a catalog to draw upon in fact, I think we used a couple of songs in the movie that that were actually were destined for our first album yeah. of uh of uh, uh, you know, all original tunes and that. So, um, yeah, so, uh, I, it's, it's so there again, I mean, it was almost uh, prophetic. You mentioned Luggage and Messina. Yeah. Uh, we ended up opening for them. Yeah, you know, that's right. Uh, as the band <laughs> became more popular. Yeah. As well as opening for Chicago, which also was prophetic, you
0: know. Yeah, you guys also opened for the Beach Boys and Jackson Brown and I think Dave Mason too, right?
1: Yeah, we sure did. Mandy, have you done your homework? I'm <laughs> impressed, Rick. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we we did. We we got to work with a lot of our heroes and uh, it was it was a wonderful experience. It really was, man.
3: Were there ever some lean times for you as a musician? I mean, meaning that, you know, there are periods of time when gigs weren't always on the radar. or uh, I mean, was it always, uh, was it ever feast or famine, that type of thing for you during this whole time? Or is it was it just building oh, up on you?
1: Absolutely. In fact, we laughing we talk about eating salad dressing sandwiches. We were. We <laughs> came to that a few times in the early days with Honk, you know, like if we were in between club gigs or whatever, you know, uh, but we were a bunch of hippies in Laguna Canyon, and, and uh, you know that's what what you do. You know, you just make do, and and it was all about the music for us, anyway. So, uh, but yeah, and in my career, certainly there have been been lean times. You know, you're waiting for the phone to ring or whatever. Being a bit of a hired gun, you know. I mean, uh, once I started doing sessions, and if I was in between tours or whatever. You know, yeah, there's definitely been lean times, but, but for the most part, I have to say, I have gone from one incredible musical situation to another without that much downtime, wow. and I've been so blessed, man. <laughs> I mean it when I say I'm grateful beyond yeah. words. I mean, because I, as we all know in this this business, I mean, yeah. you know, you're lucky to take. <laughs> Have a you know a few years of a run, you know, much less you know your, your whole life, and yeah. and this is literally all that I've ever done is play music, and uh, right. I'm so grateful for that. So grateful.
0: Well you mentioned uh, Kenny Loggins name a minute ago and he's been a guest on our show a couple of times and and uh we know you were an integral part of his band for you know about a decade or so um I think then you did some part-time work for him after you had a full-time stint but you're you're credited on his uh Keep the Fire album that was released in 79 and not only did you play drums on the album, but you're credited for harmonica parts as well. And, uh, that's something I didn't know about you until recently. And I was just curious, did, did Kenny know what he was getting, that he was getting a, such a proficient harp player when he brought you in on as a drummer?
1: Actually, no, it sort of, uh, yeah, it sort of surprised him. I think,
0: yeah.
1: uh, one day I just, you know, had a harp with me and, and, uh, and, you know, we would have to get where it was, but, uh, you know, I, I asked a guitar player or somebody to you know play play a, a blues progression, and I just started playing. And I I loved uh, harp. I was I was very very uh, influenced by Paul Butterfield. Okay. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I I used to go see him at the Golden Bear um, in Huntington Beach. and yeah. And uh, man, I loved the Paul Butterfield Blues Band so much, and so I started emulating. You know him and, and uh his licks and, and his playing. But then through Paul Butterfield I I sort of discovered, you know, like like some of the more rootsy guys, you know, Little Walter and Junior Wells and those guys, you know, the uh the real Chicago blues guys. Uh I mean or the earlier Chicago blues guys. Uh-huh. And, and uh and so I, I was influenced by them as well. But I still play harp, and, and, uh, and, man, I love that instrument. And there's, a, there's just something about um, that sound, you know, like a, with a bullet microphone through an old tweed fender amp. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, it sounds like a dinosaur is yeah. coming at you. I just <laughs> love that sound. In fact, with Honk, uh, you know, we had one saxophonist, and ultimately in the band, uh, that uh, joined. We were a quartet when we first Got together, but then uh, you know we added a couple members, and uh, one being Craig Bueller on saxophone, and and uh, on a few tunes. In fact, one of the albums we did for Epic Records because we did three albums a total of three albums. Yeah, uh, um, I doubled on harmonica the horn lines that that he had written, and that really kind of kind of created a sound that that you know. We hadn't heard it that, to that point, and uh, i'm I'm still not sure I've heard it. I think war uh, has, done, has done a few few tracks like that you know and uh and i I'm, I'm sure we didn't invent it but but anyway, we loved the way that sounded, so we started using that on on occasion
3: yeah. You know? Hey, you know, on that Keep the Fire album, you know, one of the albums or one of the songs on that album was called, you know, Who's Right, Who's Wrong. And it was written by Kenny, uh-huh. Kenny and uh, Richard Page. But the, right. the, the neat thing about this track is that Michael Jackson was singing the background vocals on it. And uh, yeah. if, if by chance, did you, were you able to be there in the tracking sessions or were those vocals added later on? Do you even recall? No, I do
1: recall, as a matter of fact, because I was a big Michael Jackson fan. This was right after Living Off the Wall had come out and become such a big success. So, of course, everybody knew who Michael Jackson was and loved his voice before. But then he was right in the process of becoming the mega
2: superstar
1: that he ultimately became. Uh And uh, anyway, I had a chance to actually, you know, it was just he and I hanging and talking at one point because he was... You know, way into the drums and that, and he was admiring my drum kit, and, and uh, uh, my kit was still set up in the, in the studio when they when they brought him in to do background vocals. Mm-hmm. So we started talking drums, and he actually sat at my drum kit and everything. And uh, wow, man, it was it was <laughs> a great experience, man. And he was such a nice guy. I mean, and just so unassuming and so nice, and just just uh, very soft spoken and and. Uh, and I was—it was a great experience.
3: Yeah, you know, when you when you think back on on you know the the Kenny's uh, classic hits, you know, this is it, and keep the fire. You know, you know, could you just tell that this is those songs are going to be as huge as they were? Well,
1: man, yeah, I, I laughingly say, you know, I mean, this is it. When we first heard the tune. I mean, you just knew. I mean, the yeah. song was so strong. Yeah. He and Michael uh, had had finished it the night before we recorded it, and uh, and anyway, well, this is sort of a funny aside. Our our bass player at that time, you know, been with Kenny for many years, George Hawkins. Yeah, he. Uh, 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 we were all set to cut this tune. This is it. Uh, we hadn't actually heard it until they brought it in, you know, to the studio. George Hawkins actually had thought the session was going to be the following day, so he, <laughs> we're we're all at at uh, uh, CBS studios, I think it was in in L A. And George Hawkins was in Ventura, California, sitting down to eat. <laughs> 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 and you know, we've been frantically trying to get a hold of him all day. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Michael McDonald was there too, you know, because he, he played on the track as well. And, uh, Tom Dowd was producing, man, and it was like, you know, it was was one of the last tracks we cut for the album. And, uh, anyway, so we finally got a hold of George Hawkins, and he came roaring down from Ventura. I mean, drove, you know, thank God he didn't kill himself or somebody else, or get a ticket even, but he made it. And, uh, we had the song really worked out, you know, by the time he got there. And, uh, so... He came in and kind of watched Michael's left hand, and and then, then just played this incredible bass part. I mean, it was it was amazing how fast he. Uh, well, he's such a quick study, anyway. But yeah, but he came up with a brilliant bass line too. And it's I have to say, I'm that was one of those records, man. You know, when we got done with with the recording, the basic track, it was just like you know, it was like one of those shots from thirty feet out. Yeah, uh, with a basketball, you know when it's going in. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. or you know, you just man when you hit hit the ball with the bat just in the right spot, you know it's gone.
2: <laughs>
1: and, yeah, and uh, we kind of felt that that was yeah we all kind of knew. Yeah. we knew at the very least we knew how good it, that record was or that song you know and that recording was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know? and, uh, yeah. So yeah, most no doubt. And you mentioned who's right, who's wrong. You know, I have to say, I love that song yeah. so much, too. I mean, in addition to having had Michael Jackson, you know, sing backgrounds on I mean, it, that, that sax solo was Michael Brecker, the late Michael Breckard. That's Brecher, right, yeah. Who was like one of my all-time heroes, too, mm-hmm. in the jazz world, man. Yeah. And uh, anyway, that was in the days when we would rehearse uh, you know, a song like, you know, over and over and over again before we'd, dare foot set in uh or set foot uh, dare set foot in the studio yeah and uh so we uh, uh, so many of those arrangements you know are, are kind of complex but uh and but because we had the luxury of being able to take aim before we went into cutting, you know yeah. and that song being a prime example i think you know
0: you know, perhaps some of your most well-known drum parts have come in the you know, in the form of some of Kenny's soundtrack work, and you know most notably with Caddyshack and Footloose, and uh, and that was you that uh-huh. kick that kicks off the track uh, Footloose with that cadence-like intro that leads into that you know gritty twangy guitar part. And you know another another classic track that you performed on was uh, from Keep the Fire, titled Mister Knight, which uh, ended up in in the Caddyshack soundtrack, and it was co-written, ironically, by your old honk bandmate uh, Richard Stuckle, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Richard is a brilliant, brilliant composer and and as well as guitarist and singer.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, he uh, Kenny was a fan of his. Um, well, I think probably all the way back to to the honk days. Yeah, uh, but but uh, yeah, he and Kenny uh, Kenny had always wanted to get together and write with Richard, and and so they they got together and wrote that one. Um, Richard has, has written tunes that have been recorded by so many people over the years. Yeah. Um, um, he's sort of been under the radar, but, uh, but man, he is, is as good as they get. He's the real deal. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, uh, I love his writing. I really, really do. He's really something.
0: Yeah. Hey, guys, let's take a break, and um, let's check out a track from the new Chicago album titled Now. And this is a track called Nice Girl. And this is from our guest today, Tristan Bowden, on Inside Music Cast. I
4: love her, Madeline, need her badly, don't you see? But I keep her guessing, keep on pushing down to the breeze. She's so dramatic, she seems to panic me. Show her no need to go there honestly She's a nice girl No doubt about it She shows me every day She's a nice girl I'll figure it out Before she walks away Maybe it's me Who makes this harder Than it needs to be I don't like confronting Nothing that makes me see the truth. I like the path of least resistance, but it don't like me. I need to take a good look at who's in the mirror staring back at me. She's a nice girl.
3: Fast forward just just a, a, a little bit. Nineteen ninety, Danny Seraphin. You know, he departs from Chicago, and uh, so we need. We'd like to know. You know, give us some insights as to how you became the one selected to fill the drumming duties. You know, and uh, from you know for one of the biggest bands ever in history in modern rock and pop.
1: Okay, well I tell you, just uh, my Chicago experience uh, before being asked to to. To join the band. I mean, my God, I saw them when I was all of, you may have heard this story, I don't know, uh, when I was 16, I think, and I'd gone to the Shrine Auditorium to see Procol Ham, you know, whom um, I was a big fan of that bridge yeah, band. Right. And, and uh, and this unknown band was playing on a, on a stage uh, that wasn't even the main stage. I'd, I'd gotten to the Shrine Auditorium early, and, and, uh, I walked in and heard like what I thought was maybe the best band I'd ever heard in my life, and uh, they had three horn players and this drummer that was just unbelievable, and and incredible vocals and and music that and the guitarist so was just off the hook. And everybody in the band just blew my head off, and nobody seemed to know who they were. Um, and I finally. Uh, found somebody who said, I think they're called CTA. Yeah. And and then eventually found out that that was Chicago Transit Authority. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I would have never believed that one day I'd be asked to, to be the, the drummer. But but um, that was my first introduction, and that was, uh, it must have been 1968. It wasn't that long after they had uh, come to L.A., um, and they were actually the house band at the Whiskey a Go Go, I guess, just prior to that. And it was, I think, prior to uh, them being asked to open for Jimi Hendrix and, right. and go on tour with Hendrix. Yep. Um, anyway, Danny from that, that night, you know, on had really caught my ear, and uh, I loved, I loved jazz, man, and I loved rock and roll. And this here was a band that was doing both and uh or blending it in such a way that I'd never heard before, and uh man i just i <laughs> I couldn't help but fall in love with him um, anyway, how i guess fast forward to uh to uh post honk and uh and you know me me being with Kenny Loggins and then uh playing with Al Jarreau and and uh, all the various acts that i played with before being asked to, to join uh, Chicago uh, I actually had recorded uh, through my work with David Foster the great producer I'd recorded uh, uh, with the Chicago Horns uh, uh-huh. but never having met them yeah. uh, I, I recorded on uh, David Foster's solo album on a couple of tracks that they, they had played on as well and also Dark um, Felder. uh on a on a record that that he had done, uh, it was actually a, it was a song that was used in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It was a song called "Never Surrender" that Kenny Loggins had actually co-written with him. And okay, the Chicago Horns played on that. So I still had yet to meet those guys. Yeah. but I'd I'd, I'd uh, actually recorded with them. So anyway, through through all the, uh, my session work in that, I had had the the uh the honor of working and, and, and had become friendly with uh with the great Bill Champlin. And uh and Bill uh you know I always did, had hit it off and always had had fun working together. And um here in nineteen ninety I was facing I just come back from Europe after uh uh with Al Jarreau, and I uh, had been on the road prior to that with Kenny. I had been on the road for the better part of 10 months. And, uh, and I was facing a summer for the first time without a tour. And uh, anyway, I get a call uh, from Bill Chaplin, who says, uh, what are you doing this summer? And I said, funny you should ask, nothing. And <laughs> he said, how would you like to play with the band? And I said, and you've heard this before, but I've got to say it again. <laughs> Let me think about it. Yes. Because, <laughs> <So, laughs> man, I loved Chicago so much, man. I mean, and, uh, oh, yeah, as I, I should have mentioned, you know, we, we had the honor with Honk of actually opening for them, you know, a couple of times. Once at Anaheim Stadium and and the uh, time before that was at Balboa Stadium in uh in San Diego for, you know, 60,000 people. And, uh, and uh, boy, it was truly an honor, man, not only to just be on that stage, but then to, to be able to watch them close up do the voodoo that they do so well, you yeah.
2: know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, after that call from Bill, the timing just couldn't have been better. And uh, so uh, uh, the next thing I know, Jason Schaff is at my door, uh, he, uh, unbeknownst to me, lived only uh, uh, you know a couple of miles away, and uh, and he had a sh- show tape for me to, to to learn the show, and uh, <laughs> I was leaving the following day to go to Peru with my then wife, who um, <laughs> was a Latin uh, one of the top Latin choreographers in the country to. Uh, to shoot a video with this Peru, Peruvian artist that uh, I wow. recorded with and that she had worked with, and uh, we were going to shoot a video in Peru. Uh, so it was so surreal, Rick, i got to tell you. The next thing I know, I'm on a plane, listening to Chicago, trying to learn their show, <laughs> flying to Lima, Peru, and, and, uh, <laughs> wow. and so... Uh, well, by the time I came back it was time to rehearse and and uh, i I'd, I'd done my best to learn the show and every nuance and yeah. of it. And uh I was such a Danny seraphim fan, it was really fun to be able to hear, you know, and and really study exactly what he was doing and of course a lot of the parts had 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 evolved from what the original recordings were. Mm-hmm. And it was it was neat to hear how he was interpreting live, you
0: know, some of the older teams. Right. That, that was actually a question I had was that, you know, you, uh, you know, how do you approach, how do you approach that material that was created, you know, prior to your arrival, you know, the 20 something years of history. And then, and then I started thinking about it too. You know, it's crazy to think about this, but, you know, your tenure with Chicago has now surpassed the time that Seraphim spent with the band. And so combining that question, you know, you had all this 20 something years of material to to learn prior to your arrival but how do you think you've helped shape the band sound since you've been there
1: well you know that's that's interesting that you asked that because uh, originally uh, I was I tried to to make the transition as 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 easy as possible by trying to stay uh, kind of close to what Danny was had been playing live, um, yeah. And as I say, some of those parts, like you know, he was playing two and four only on on twenty five or sixty four, right? You know? uh, uh, not that that not with that skip, that I, you know, that was not happening. You know, at the, by the time I'd gotten the show tape, so you know, even though I would, that would have been my first inclination would be to play. Uh, the skip you know yeah. he wasn 't doing it, so I tried to keep kind of to what Danny was doing uh, at that time, but I was also told from the get they said don 't feel like you have to do exactly what Danny did, you know, make it your own as well so uh so here and there you know i i I would you know try to put my own interpretation in there but but I felt, you know, it was almost sacrilegious to change things too much, you know. And uh mm-hmm. uh because some some of those Danny Sith and uh like like licks and, and uh uh kills and 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 patterns and all, I mean there's as important as the, the, the chorus mm-hmm. the, you know, the yeah. melody as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and absolutely. There's much a part of, of those records, you know. So uh so I found that I started evolving more and more back to to what was original, what Danny originally played, and uh, and or at least you know my approximation of that. And so that's that's kind of what I do, and a lot, and still to this day, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the ending of of uh, the ballet or making smile. Yeah. I try to play exactly what he played. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's such a signature thing.
3: Yeah. You know? Right. Hey Tris, in two thousand and one, you and a Chicago bandmate, of course uh, Keith Howland, guitarist, uh, teamed up to to produce a really neat record. It was uh, it was called uh, the Howland Imboden project, and it was a neat instrumental project. I mean, you guys covered a lot of musical territory: blues, funk, you know, rock, jazz, and uh, it was uh, it was obviously an album that let you guys unveil a different style and, and a little bit of other freedom musically. Tell us a little bit about this project. Well,
1: you know, at that point, Keith uh, was putting together his home studio, and uh, Keith is actually, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but he's a pretty uh, accomplished drummer himself. So hmm. he had a drum set at his house, and and he asked me, hey, man, would you come over and uh, and play a little bit, you know? So I can kind of dial in the drum kit, you know, right? cuz he's also a great engineer. And uh I said, "Sure, man." So I I, uh, I came over and and then, you know, we started messing around uh, you know, with he playing and me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it started uh, the it started sounding like something. And so we thought, "Man, you know, maybe we why don't we just, you know, maybe not necessarily do a formal record, but why don't we just uh start recording some stuff. So we called his his good friend Lance Morrison, a great bass player, who had just done uh Alanis Morissette's album, um and uh and and the chemistry between Lance and myself was was really good as well. And so we uh we just started writing stuff on the spot and uh you know we kind of shot for like a, a song a day and uh so we'd, we'd finish it no matter what um uh, or at least get finished composing it and uh, the only my only regret about that record was that that uh you know I was in the process of learning these songs as we were writing them and uh I would like to, to have had the luxury of knowing them before we recorded it, <laughs> but uh but but there's uh, you know there's there's something to be said for spontaneity, I suppose too. Yeah. And uh, yeah. But Keith, you know, had the he did have the luxury of it was his studio. When everybody went home, he could perfect his guitar parts right. and guitar sound. So I love his guitar playing on that record. I just I think it's
0: amazing. Well, it's a it's a fantastic project. And I encourage anyone who hasn't heard it to check it out. And uh, it's it's a really it's a great. Fusion album. i I l I've listened to it quite a bit in the past decade. <laughs>
1: oh man, thank you, Rick. I'm very flattered. Thank you. Hey what so a... we we actually uh recorded uh, a lot of that stuff live too. There was a uh oh, Allen wow. Bowden uh project live at the Baked Potato album that we uh we oh, did wow. and, and uh we used Steve Weingart, the great uh, yeah. keyboard player from Dave Records band and yep. and uh brilliant player, man. And,
0: he's uh, he's he been on our show awesome. before.
1: Oh yeah, Steve's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, it was and that that came out kind of neat too? The the live live version.
0: I'll have to check that out. I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. Hey guys, while we're on the topic of the Howland and Bowden project, uh, let's pause and and uh, let's check out a track from that album that came out back in uh, I think it was two thousand one, and this is called "Theme from a Love Dream" from our guest today, Triss and Bowden on Inside Music Cast. Hey, um one of our Inside Music Cast correspondents is a guy named Don Brightup, and, and Don is a fantastic musician himself. And as a matter of fact, you may know him. Um, he's a he's a keyboardist, arranger, and producer for a, a, his band called Brass Transit. Oh, right. And I think a buddy of yours, their drummer, is a guy named Paul DeLong.
1: Absolutely. Whoa, what a monster that guy <laughs> is, too. Yeah. Oh, man. And Brass Transit, I have to say... Paul had just sent me a a recording of of the band, their most recent Uh
2: record,
1: and man, they sound amazing, man. I mean, uh, and we we actually met all those guys. They actually, I think the lion's share of the band uh, came to see us perform one night. They so cool. That was pretty
0: recently, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Don, Don was going to join us here tonight because he had some questions uh, for you, but he wasn't able to make it. But I've got, his, I've got a few of his questions here, and one of them is, uh, during, he, he asks, uh, during Chicago's many tours with Earth, Wind, and Fire, there, you know, there are large chunks of the show where the drummers from both bands are playing. And uh, Had you had much experience before that playing full-on groove stuff with another drummer? And uh, how do you and John Paris control the traffic?
1: Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, uh, John Paris and I—he's um, my brother. I've got to say, man, it was it just a connection, man. From the first day we we met, he and I just really, you know, uh, we really connected. And uh, you know, gratefully, our time sense is 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 very very similar. We didn't have to adjust uh, like me, you know, like if if you. We, Play on top of the beat, you know, a little ahead or whatever. I didn't have to adjust to his feel, nor he to mine. We both uh, just sort of inherently feel things, kind of in the same spot. So, uh, so it was real easy for he he and I to play together. Um, I have ha- I had had some experience playing double drums. The fact is, uh, I just saw something recently. I didn't even know that there was. Footage of it, but uh, I'd done double jumps with Jeff Bacall some years before um, at, uh, at this this benefit for Toys for Tots. The
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins, and uh, wow, oh man, all kinds of people. The band was amazing. It Steve Lukather and Anne Landau in the Hay Horn section, and wow. Nathan East, and on and on. Man. <laughs> uh, but I got to I got to play with Jeff, man. It, and he and I have been friends since the Hawk days, you know uh-huh. and uh oh my god he's you know destined' to been one of my all time favorite players <laughs> you know it was he's such a he was such a great great guy, and uh man it was so much fun to play with him and there's a version of uh uh Michael McDonald doing uh, uh let's stay together the al Green team yeah. that we're both playing on that you can see on youtube, you know yeah. Very cool. A yeah.
0: You know, there was a period around 2009 where you kind of had to step away from uh, Chicago or the band due to, due to complications with, with lung cancer. And I you know that had to be an extremely difficult period for you both physically and emotionally. And, you know, the good news is, is that, you know, you're fully recovered. But tell us about this period if you if you can or if you want to talk about this and how it affected you and how battling cancer ultimately made you a stronger person.
1: Oh, man. Okay. Well, yeah, I have to say, Rick, that was quite, quite a shock, man. I mean, I've been always, uh, I was a doctor's son, actually. Um, at least my first stepdad was a physician, and, and I've always been kind of really health-aware or, or proactive health-wise, even uh-huh. though in my checkered past, you know, uh-huh. um, I I did smoke you know, for a number of years and and smoked quite a bit, actually. But um, uh, I had quit smoking some 11 years before, you know, it was even discovered there was anything going on with with me uh, as far as lung, anything, you know. Um, I laughingly say that heart disease saved my life, and and I say that because, Two years to to uh, prior to my diagnosis, uh, I had had an angiocat scan, uh-huh. which they can do now. Uh, uh, which uh, it, I guess the cat scan itself, uh, it used to be that that they couldn't uh, detect any plaque in your coronary arteries because your heart was was beating, uh, you know, at the same time or too fast. To be able to actually you know, grab an image, but anyway, through the new technology, they they found a way to do that, and so these angiocat scans uh, had detected uh, some some plaque in in my coronary arteries, uh-huh. and so two years after that, uh, my cardiologist said, you know, we should probably go have another look and see whether that statin drug has been helping, because sometimes it helps clear that out, and also because he used to be a smoker, or a former smoker. You just uh-huh. had to look at your lungs. So, yeah. thank God we did because it was a seven uh, uh, centimeter tumor wow. uh, there in my lung. And uh, The good news was, was yeah, my coronary arteries uh, had improved, but uh, <laughs> there it was. And uh, so, long story short, uh, or try to make it not too long anyway, um, I I went to a number of different cancer centers, none of them really quite felt right, and uh, until I actually, uh, at the behest of uh, a few people, checked out Vanderbilt in um, in Nashville, and they are very very on on top of uh, uh, and cutting edge, no pun intended, when it comes to to uh, their surgeons and and uh, and oncologists and all of that. So. I went through chemo and radiation, and, uh, and ultimately surgery, and then post-surgical chemo. Uh, and uh, man, it was no walk in the park, that's all i got to say. Not to mention the fact that it, um, I was stage 3A, which is considered the last curable stage. Yeah. Wow. Um, once it's 3B and beyond into stage 4, the chances are really, really diminished, you know. I hadn't really even told anybody in the band this, but the chances of me being here five years later, it's now been well over five and a half years later. There's only a fourteen percent chance <laughs> that I'd be here. Wow. So uh I uh I have to say that, that this entire experience has I thought I was a grateful and uh, appreciative Person, when, when it came to to life and all the gifts that we've all been given by uh, just by being alive, you know, and uh, all the beauty and all the uh, the, the wonderful experiences that, that we all, you know, get in our lifetimes. But man, it has given me an appreciation and a, and a gratitude that that transcends anything I thought possible. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, not only that. Uh, One of my favorite pastimes in the world, uh, aside from playing music, is surfing, and I'm still able to do that. Yeah, that's uh, great. um, In fact, I just got back from Costa Rica. That's right, yeah, you told me about that. I went on a surfing trip, man, for a week, you know, trying to make up for for lost time this past year, you know, uh, being on the road so much, I really didn't get to surf too much. Well,
3: thank um, God you're here with us. Yeah, that's
1: good. Anyway, I'm 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 really really happy I'm able to do that, but but more than anything, just happy to be alive. Wow. Playing drums was was something that I uh, you know I didn't know know whether I was going to be able to even do. You know, um, they asked, actually had to remove well two thirds of my right lung, and uh, you have three lobes on your right and two on your left, and uh, so they they uh, removed the medial and lower lobe from my right side. And uh, so, gratefully, I had, uh, um, like, uh, it was 140% of normal lung capacity. You know, they test you for that Uh uh, before surgery. So, uh, my my surgeon laughingly said, by the time I'm done with you, you should be about normal. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, uh, gratefully, uh, I, I, I am. Just about normal. I'm at ninety something percent now, I guess. So, uh, but nonetheless, I do get winded a lot easier than I used to. And there's certain things I just can't do. Yeah, I can't run distance anymore like I used to love to do, and you know that sort
3: of thing. But yeah. I
1: can play drums,
3: <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> hey, listen, let's let's yeah. jump ahead a little bit. Now we're going to be uh, talking about the the new Chicago album. A lot of uh, our listeners are very uh, you know anxious to, to hear you talk about the album called Now which technically is album it's it's uh, I think it's the 23rd studio album uh, that, yeah. that's just amazing those numbers are staggering just in the discography alone you know um, uh-huh. but on, on this uh, on the Chicago site it mentions that much of this record was recorded on the road during the 2013 American tour So, uh, you know, tell us about this big recording studio named The Rig that you guys took, you know, everywhere with you guys and and, uh, how you record this project.
1: Well, actually, um, yeah, that was sort of Lee's baby putting together this remote recording, you know, facility that that we could just take with us.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: uh, with regards to The Rig. uh, But actually, when we would record the drums, uh, Keith actually has also a portable facility, and so Keith, being the drummer that he is, and and the the engineer that he is as well, uh, we would just before a show, um, you know, use his his uh, preamps and and mics and all of that, and uh, put up the, uh, the the track that needed the the, the drums added and uh, record the drums before the show, and. uh so anyway, but the rig uh, served uh, to to give the band the facility of, of being able to record the horns and vocals and and whatnot, you know, um, in a hotel room, um, you know, anywhere we were or, or or wherever, even at at the gig too. So it, anyway, it was. I've never done a record like this. <laughs> I don't think any of us had. Yeah. Uh, where, where we record at the show and, and and or at the hotel, right? But um, it was uh, it was really kind of a neat process, you know. It was neat that it turned out as well as it did. As I mentioned earlier, I might have kind of alluded to. I love having the the luxury of being able to rehearse a, a tune, kind of come up with a with a, a part, you know, a, kind of a, a creative. Uh, like blueprint, you know, like section to section, and uh, that's the one thing that that uh, I wasn't really able to do that much of, uh, and and I like doing that as a rhythm section, uh, you know, with the bass player and and the guitarist and the keyboard player. Uh, that was the only downside about recording this way, you know, it was it was done kind of piecemeal, mm-hmm. uh, and I I would play to kind of react to what was already recorded there. Yeah. And in this case, it's it's to my benefit, or to, to the drummer's benefit, to be able to have as much as possible on, on there before you record. Because, you know, if the horns are on there, uh, you, you will probably, you know, want to set up a pattern uh, uh, to sort of launch one of their parts or whatever, or, or a fill. You know, um, whereas if they If they weren't there, you know it, it, <laughs> you wouldn't have that luxury, so anyway, I don't know whether I'm making sense with this but but um, um that's the only th- uh, um regret I have about this record was that we didn't really get to um as a rhythm section get to to really work together uh to compose rhythm tracks, if you will.
2: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. but but I don't think the record suffers as a result. Though it's it's um, it's just that I prefer to work that way, you
3: know. Yeah. Hey, Tris. As we said before, you know the you know this project is is sort of it took us by surprise. To be honest with you. You know, it really did. You know, everybody, every one of our correspondents, when the album first came out, we were completely taken by the quality, the freshness, and and overall great tracks. And 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 it came out of the blue. And to be honest with you, Chicago really surprised us. And but do you think that you guys really surprised the industry with such an amazing effort? I mean, this thing is it's well engineered, well arranged. I mean, it's top notch. What do you think about that?
1: Oh man, thank you, thank you so much. Well, I think yeah. I think yeah. You know, uh, uh, people probably were not expecting us to to come out with a new recording. You know, um, it had been so long. I mean, actually, uh, Stone of Sisyphus. You know, was supposed to have come out in the in the early nineties, and it took till what was it? it <laughs> Two thousand and nine. Yeah, that just came out, or, yeah. mm-hmm. or, or later. You know. Um, that was that was tragic as far as I was concerned. I loved that album. We all did, and we were very disappointed. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I think we did surprise uh, people with this. And, yeah. and it, what was neat to see is that that uh, uh, the response, particularly in Europe, you know, we got uh, quite a bit of airplay. Uh, BBC Two, uh, we were in heavy rotation. Uh, the song now was being played over there quite a bit in a number of different countries and and uh, and then uh getting to play the re- the reaction we got when we played that song, the title tune now, as well as America mm-hmm. uh live. It, I mean it was so great to see people really I mean were responding to new music, to our our new music. And uh and I know in the past the band has been reluctant to put too much or much at all new music in our set, because first of all, there's so many hits that we have to get to, or people are going to feel disappointed. Uh, but then also that that uh, sometimes it, you know that's when people go get a beer or. <laughs> it, you know, Don't
0: you just want to toss a drumstick at those people? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Truth be told, yes I do. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> but that's uh it's kind of kind of why the band has has not played that much new music live, you know, yeah. in in recent years. Um but anyway it was so great. It was just so great to to see the reaction that, that that we got with this new stuff, you know, I, I think there's some great, great tunes on there as well.
0: Yeah, man. there really are. Um, yeah. And actually, we want to talk about a few of those those tracks. And uh, you know, and, and as but as we said before, you know, the arranging along with uh, the recording is is impeccable. And that the lead track that you mentioned a second ago now is such a great piece to start the the album off with. And you know, when we heard this track, you know, you kind of know what you're in for with the rest of the album because you just you just know it's going to be great. And, and uh, everyone, you know, talking about, uh, uh, you know, that, well, the track, you know, really has a, a deep groove and it has a great bass line. And, of course, the drumming performance is great. And every, everyone gets a piece of the action on this track, don't they?
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, it's funny you mention that track because that is that is the only track that is not uh, the Chicago rhythm section on there. I don't know whether you knew that
0: or not. I didn't know that. Whoa.
1: Y- yeah, yeah. That's actually Verdeen White, the bass player of First and Fire.
2: Really? Okay. Um,
1: yeah. And uh, I'm trying to remember the name of, of the, the, the drummer. He's a great drummer uh, that is sort of uh, like an up-and-coming uh, player that is, in LA, I believe he's in L. although he may be in Nashville. Uh, he's a friend of Jason's. And uh, anyway... Um I was all set to, to uh to, to play on on that track when it looked like it was gonna go originally it was gonna be on Jason's solo album and uh-huh. that's why uh it wasn't us, you know.
2: I see. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: We were all set to replace place those uh those parts and I was gonna play drums on it. Uh but then uh, all of a sudden Pioneer Records needed the master right away. So uh so as a result the only uh A person from the rhythm section that did play on there is Keith Howland. He does the guitar solo.
0: Okay, all right. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's that's really interesting. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. There's another neat track, uh, Tris, that uh, that really interests us quite a bit. It's called "Free at Last," and it's a you know it's hugely guitar driven. You know the classic Chicago soundtrack. You know, and uh, you know it's almost as uh, it's almost a, a Terry Kath homage. You know, homage, uh-huh. and, and it really is. And with with the lead vocals by you know, of course, Robert Lamb, but the B three in the background. I mean, it it is. It, yeah. it just it almost like links you back to you yeah. know uh, a, the 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 early albums with I Terry guess. Kath. It really has that sound. uh, uh oh, if, right. Explain that a little bit. Do you agree with that or not?
1: I do agree with that. In fact, we were shooting for that. Keith and I. Uh, there again, that was Keith and I at his house, uh, just sort of messing around. And he said, I kind of got an idea. I mean, it really harkens back to some, you know, some um, older Chicago tunes and, and Terry. But what do you think of this, you know? And and uh, so he just started playing, and I started playing too. <laughs> God, I love it, man. And uh, and so we, we just started putting together sections. Uh, and Jason then came over, and, and we ended up... Uh, Kind of, it was a collaborative um, with all of us. Um, uh, uh, all those different sections, so six, eight, and uh, you know, and then back into the four and all of that. Um, <clears throat> it was all sort of a, a, a group effort in, in arranging that, uh, and then. We brought Robert in, you know, and he loved, it, loved the track and, and the song so much. And and said, uh, well, gee, do you want to take it back at the lyrics? And he said, sure, man. So he wrote the lyrics for the thing. But it definitely sounds and it is Chicago, you know? Um, dare I say that? I mean, um, I got all along felt so honored to be a, a, a part of this band's great legacy. Yeah. But then to be able to, to, to co-write a song that 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 really sounds like not much like uh, like the Chicago I've always loved too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was uh, really the real, realization of a dream. So
3: yeah, yeah. Very, hey, this we have of course the it's really exciting news to see that you've added a, a newest Chicago member. So. Uh, which is a, he, he's a great Cuban percussionist, uh, of course, working with Santana for all these years and so many others, but it's Walfredo Reyes Jr. Yes. And, uh, yes. you know, you know, tell us about him joining the band because you guys do some things together on stage that uh, you go head-to-head with the drummer versus percussion stuff in your shows, and uh, right. I mean, he's added a whole new mix. Tell us about that dynamic, could you? Oh, I sure
1: will. Well, I tell you, Wally and I go way back. Boy, we've known each other for years, I've known his whole family actually. Uh, his father and his brother. His brother's playing with Zach Brown now. You, you probably know Danny Rays. and uh, uh, his father, of course, was uh, was, was uh, one of the two innovators incorporating uh, percussion along with drum set at the same time. He was one of the first to be using timbales and, and congas. Uh, uh, with the drum set and playing, playing them, you know, with one hand while playing the drum set with the with the other. Uh, I first became aware of Wally as a drummer years ago uh, when he was with David Lindley, and uh, I'd heard about this new guy in town in LA that sounded like three three people. And uh, I was at a, a rehearsal studio. Well, I, I forget who I was there with, but. Um, I was listening to, I knew it was David Lundley, and I I was listening to what sounded like at least two drummers, or a drummer and a percussionist, and and, uh, I thought, oh, I wonder if it's that guy I've been hearing about. I peeked my head in, and sure enough, it was one guy, and it was Wallace. (laughs) (laughs) wow, man! (laughs) So uh, I've been a fan of his ever since, and that was in the 70s. Um, Wow. um, Anyway, so... Uh, and then you know we've known each other and, and we've actually played together. It was a band that <clears throat> that when I, in my off time uh, with Chicago, I played with my wife and, and my band. Uh, I might have mentioned my, uh, the uh, flying to Peru with uh, uh, the choreographer, which she's also a singer. She was my wife Cecilia Noel. We had a band that was a sixteen-piece Latin funk band. Oh yeah, Cecilia Noel and the Wild clams, And we had, like, some of the greatest players literally in the world as a part of that band. Uh, Jimmy Earl on bass and, and uh, from Chick and God, Luis Conte and the yeah. Sanchez and percussion and, cool you know, stuff, on, and yeah. on and on and on. Anyway, Wal, Walfredo uh, also played with the band on occasion. So he and I had worked together. He had played percussion while I had played drums, you know. Um, but, uh I so I knew that our, our pocket and our groove you know was I mean it was it was like a lead pipe cinch you know yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so easy to play with him. he's yeah. so tasteful you know just uh just an incredible incredible musician Mhm
0: mhm Hey, you know Tris, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we appreciate every every minute you've given us. Um, we, we could, I oh, think, we could probably talk to you for another hour or two because there's so many things to talk about. Um, we'll just wrap it up though with sure. one with one more track from uh, the album, and that's uh, that's a track called "Another Trippy Day." And Eddie and I both oh, love right? this track. It, you know, it's it, it's a trippy tune. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I really like yeah. that one. It has a light field, tell us about that track.
1: Well, it's uh Robert Lamb is, is uh he is such a progressive progressive guy, man. Mm-hmm. And is always listening for new things and, and listening to uh different you know, new new groups and new yeah. records and, and all and is influenced as a result by by uh so so many different things. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Naked in the Garden of Allah and that, mm, <laughs> right. they're off that, that record, exhibiting that very thing, you know. Yep. Uh, but Trippy Day, Robert, well, he, you know, has, has lived in New York City and, and uh, you know, loved city life so much. And, uh-huh. and I think that the tune, in a way, kind of about that and, and sonically reflects that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, more than that, I don't know what to say about it. You'd have yeah. to ask Robert. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just, <laughs> I just love that 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 song and that track too. Yeah. And it's it's one of those that that sticks in your in your in your head and you can't get it out. But you don't want want it gone. You know what I mean? It's right. you want it stuck there. You know, mm-hmm. you can't help but sing it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Robert's great. We've we've had Robert on the show before. It's been a few years, but he was he joined us uh, right around the time he released his Bossa project. I don't know, maybe it was five or six years ago or something oh, yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tris, Eddie, if you guys don't mind, let's pause for a second and uh, let's take a listen to this track, "Another Trippy Day," from the new Chicago album titled "Now." From our guest today, Tris and Bowden on Inside MusicCast
5: A slow crescendo and the floor beneath me shakes The downtown E-train passing So in my dream The subway rumble drives a cinematic scene Open my eyes The silent thunder of a room I recognize a hint of distant chancing. Lovers embrace, just barely moaning. I turn and see her face.
4: I think about it, but every day, got a groove that I wanna sing.
5: are right there. you can't deny the beat, the drum loop got me jumping, the black neon glow, the urban buzzing, still you are all I know.
4: such sweet times I
5: made me just a lucky fool
0: Well, hey Tris, this is this has been a fantastic chat. We've yeah. learned so much about you, and uh, I know our our uh, audience really appreciates you spending so much time with us. And uh, thanks so much. We we uh, we've learned a lot today.
1: Oh man! Well, Rick, thank you, and i i hope uh, i hope it was what you'd hoped for.
0: <laughs> it was fun. Thank you so much. We'll keep up with you, and uh, we'll touch base sometime, and we'll check in and make sure uh, you see what else is going on in your career.
1: i well, I sure like that. All right. Thank you, Rick, and All thank right. you, Eddie. No problem. Well.
0: Enjoy. Talk to you later. All right, take care. Okay,
1: you too.
0: All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Special thanks to Trissom Bowden for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Uniland, for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.